Today we're going to start what's called a sacramental economy and up here I've read the, the Greek word economia which is where we get the word economy from it's O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-A economia generally speaking in theology books it's translated as plan of action it literally translates as house management from the Greek so sometimes you'll hear people talk about it's the way I, in many ways it's how I was taught by my professors to just call it a plan in, in church speak if somebody's talking about the economy of something they mean the plan the plan to do something plan of action as well so the sacramental uh, economy means how do the sacraments fit in to God's plan of action one, one small definition of this that I've grabbed from the distant recesses of my head was that liturgy and sacraments are the economia through which we receive salvation. And that's what I'll be talking about tonight. How the sacraments fit in to the economia of God, the plan that God had in order to bring us home so that we could be in his life. Okay, so sacramental economy means the plan of action that God had using the sacraments to help us come home to him. Is that clear to everybody? Is that okay? Across the, uh, just a couple of articles later in the Catechism 240, it just, it says, Jesus revealed that God is Father in an unheard of sense. He is Father not only in being Creator, He is eternally Father in relation to His only Son, who is eternally Son only in relation to His Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. As you all know, that's from Scripture. That's from Matthew eleven twenty-seven. So, when God created man, what was His intent for us? To be with Him forever. To be with Him. Not to know Him. To be with Him. So, we know God. We know God exists. You know, even the devil, as I've said before, even the devil knows, knows God exists. So somebody who's an atheist is needing to give themselves a good slap in the head because even the devil doesn't doubt God's existence because that's where he's, he is where he is. But God made us to be with him, intimately with him. You think back to the garden. The plan was not that Adam and Eve would leave the garden. The plan would, was that Adam and Eve and all their progeny would be with God, would walk with God, would chat with God in person. That's an intimate relation with God. In some theological textbooks, you'll find it described as the immediacy of God, that God is right there. That's what he intended for us, for us to be right there with him, not to be separated, not to, do, to be in danger of being eternally separated. We were meant to be right there with them. If you look at Article 358 in the Catechism, God created everything for man. 
Everything that he made, he made for us. But man, in turn, was created to serve and love God and to offer all creation back to him. Then there's an excerpt from a homily of St. John Chrysostom. What is it that is about to be created that enjoys such honor? It is man, that great and wonderful living creature, more precious in the eyes of God than all other creatures. For him, the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all the rest of creation exist. God attached so much importance to his salvation that he did not spare his own son for the sake of man, nor does he ever cease to work, trying every possible means until he has raised man up to himself and made him sit at his right hand. You know, St. Irenaeus, the quote you've, most of you have heard before, early church father, disciple of St. Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, St. Irenaeus coined that beautiful phrase that God became man so that he could make man unto God. He could raise us up. He came down so he could raise us up. We're meant to be with God. We, our ancestor, Adam, messed that up. But God made us to be with him. In Article 376, by the radiance of, of his grace, all dimensions of man's life were confirmed. As long as he remained in the divine intimacy, I talked about that a minute ago, that being with God, that following what God wanted, that intimacy, man would not have to suffer or die. The inner harmony of the human person, the harmony between man and woman, and finally the harmony between the first couple and all creation comprised the state called original justice. That's how things were meant to be. Things were meant to be that God made us, we were to be happy, and he was to share in our joy. Not because he needs it, but because he loves so much, he wanted to show his love to us as creatures. And as long as we remained in that divine uh, intimacy, everything would have been all right. And what happened? They had to eat the fruit. Now, you might ask yourself, that's all really, really beautiful, and it truly is beautiful. And if that's the case, why did God not just say, all right, forget all about that, let's start again. I'm going to read out a parable to you. It's a parable you all know, but I'd like you to reflect on what the Father does in this parable. Then Jesus said, a man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate and come to me, that should come to me rather. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a different, distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him to his farm to tend the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods in which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? And here am I, dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. 
While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father ordered his servants, Quickly, bring the finest robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fatted calf, slaughter it, then let us celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. You know how the rest of that goes. But the important part is, Jewish inheritance. The first son got two-thirds of everything that the father owned. The second oldest son got one-third. So what he's asking his dad for is, he's actually doing a couple of unpleasant things. He's asking his father for one-third of everything the man has there and then. He's also saying to his dad, I want it now. I can't wait until you're dead. I want it now. Now, many of you in front of me are parents. You've all more or less faced that dilemma of my son or my daughter is about to mess up their life. Do I fight? Do I stand back? Do I try to tell them in what seems like a non-aggressive fashion? Do I pray to God? What did this father do? He let his son go. Not because he didn't love him. We know he loved him. Look what he did. Look what he did later. When his son came back, he didn't say, I told you. I told you, you muppet. I told you. He didn't. He said, let's have a celebration for he who is lost is found. That's why Adam was allowed to go. Because God loves us so much, he respects our decisions. We talked about this, we covered this when we talked about universalism. That God respects your decisions. He's not a fool. You make a choice. God respects you've made that choice. When we turn our back on God, if we turn back, as we heard in the prodigal, God will embrace us. God accepts our apologies. God finds a place for us. And there's a celebration. But God will not force salvation on anyone. You have to want it. You have to work towards it. It's a gift from God, but you have to want it. You have to make sure you don't turn your back on it. That's why God let Adam go, rather than say, okay, let's rub all that out and start again. You know, obviously when I was making you, I put a bit of an idiot inside there. Let's see if I can get somebody with a bit more of an IQ. That's not what God said. God said, you've made your choice. I told you. I treated you as an adult but you don't want to be treated as an adult. Now you have to learn. Most of you will have done that with your children in one way or another. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. That's why we're sitting here still, still working on getting our salvation because time and time again, as we talked about in the class we did on the covenants, God makes promises, man promises back, he falls, he falls, he falls. God is always true. Just like in the prodigal, the father's waiting. The father is always waiting. When you're wrestling with things to do with sins in your life, and and many of you will have heard me say this before, I'm sure. When you look at the crucifix, like the big one we have here, you see Christ with his arms outstretched. Like the father seeing his son in the distance, he runs to him, 
with his arms outstretched. Now, Christ's arms are nailed out by our sins, but we all know he did that voluntarily. He put his hands out to be nailed. Nobody had to drag his hands out to be nailed, like the father in the, in the, in the, the parable. Jesus is waiting to hug us, to bring us home. If we run in a different direction, we cannot blame him. That's part of the dignity that, that he gives us. So as I just said, God tried in many and various ways to reconcile us with himself. We had covenants, prophets, and each time we, we failed. So God came himself. And just so we all know, not that any of you in here are in doubts, but sometimes, you know, it's good to hear it. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, 19, this is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then verse 19, for in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. We must always remember that we're talking about God in his fullness here. Jesus is the firstborn, the new Adam. In doing this, once again, God gives us instructions as to how to return to the Father. Because Jesus, being the God-man, he makes God present as never before. Because he is God. So whereas in the past there was covenants, Moses wasn't God, David wasn't God, Abraham wasn't God, Adam wasn't God. Jesus is God. So now, man and God become even more intimately linked than they ever were before because Jesus is the God-man. It's an expression I'm sure many of you heard before. Gospel of John, um, John 14, 9-11. Jesus said to him, this is to Philip, when he said, Philip says, Master, show us the Father. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long a time, and you still don't not, do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is, do, is doing his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe because of the works themselves. To see Jesus is to see God. When you receive communion, Yes, you're receiving Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity. So you receive the Trinity. Because the Trinity cannot be separated. You can't separate Jesus from any part of the Trinity. See one, you see them all. You know that, uh, is it John Chrysologus, that uh, homily that I gave out? Um, I think of the Father, and I think of the Son, and I am content until I remember the Spirit. I think of the Spirit, I think of the Son, and I wonder where is the Father. I think of the Father and the Spirit, and I realize where is the Son, and then I realize I will never understand, and I am content. To see one is to see all. To receive one is to receive all. The life of the Trinity, it's not you get a little bit of the Spirit, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. No, the life of the Trinity is what you receive in the sacraments and in grace. And by becoming man, God makes the invisible visible. He makes physical things holy because Jesus was holy, is holy. There was a heresy 
in, I think it was 750 to 780 something, I forgot to write it down, called Iconoclasm, which is a fancy name for destroying images. It was brought about under the influence of Islam. In Islam, you're not allowed to have a picture of, of Muhammad, which actually isn't quite true. It'd get you killed, but in the caliphate in Spain, they used to have pictures of Muhammad, and most of them were destroyed, but some still exist. But it's a terrible uh, heresy in Islam to have pictures of God because God is so detached from us. And so that crept into the Greek-speaking part of the church, and people started destroying icons and statues and having fights about it. Of course they did. I've told you before about how gangs of monks used to go around with one heresy on their mind, beating up other people who they thought were heretics. And I'm thinking of starting that again. <laughs> Any volunteers? Andy? You and me? Go attack a few people. Good man. <laughs> okay. Why is it okay for us to have pictures of God? Who do you think? Because Jesus became man. So Jesus became man, so of course you can paint him. He didn't become a pretend man. He became man. The Holy Spirit, when Jesus was baptized, how did the Holy Spirit appear? As a dove. So of course you can paint the Holy Spirit as a dove. If God, if God, if it's good enough for God, <laughs> it should be good enough for us. And that was the, the thinking that was made. But more extended from that, by becoming corporeal matter, God in many ways sanctifies matter. He makes things, he makes us more precious than we even were before because of the, what's called the kenosis, the emptying. God didn't deem it beneath himself to empty himself to become a man. So now we truly can say we're made in the image and likeness of God because he came down and became a human being. Now, he might not have been as handsome as me. Why are you laughing? He probably did have a Scottish accent. I think that goes without saying. He certainly would not have had an English accent. So, the invisible becomes visible. God is touchable, literally touchable, because he took on flesh. That means that the invisible God became visibly active in the world. That means that our reconciliation with God could have a physical dimension to it. In order to share a life with God, which is an invisible thing, God was able to use physical matter, flesh and bones, crucifix, as a real man. The instrument of our salvation was flesh and bone, God taking on flesh and, and bone. So why did he do it? John chapter 1, verse 11 to 13. He came to what was his own, to his own people, but they did not accept him. But to those who did accept him, he gave power to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not by natural generation, nor by human choice, nor by man's decision, but of God. He came 
so that we could become children of God. So you've, most of you have heard the expression, we are adoptive sons and daughters. Well, that's not just an expression because God became a man, a real man, who, who could have adopted brothers and sisters and does, of which we're all part. And what other reason did he come? John 3.16. Everybody should know John 3.16 because it's held up at sports games all the time. Mind you, if you're not a sports fan, you wouldn't know that. But it's... Okay, so John 3.16 and 17 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God became a man for one reason only, to save us, to bring us home, so that we could be with him forever. That is, as you all know, that is the joy of Christmas. Joy of Christmas is not sleigh bells, Frank Sinatra singing, nasty trees, which are usually combustible. The real joy of heaven is, as Fulton Sheen very beautifully put it, the wood of the crib becomes the wood of the cross. That God becomes man for one reason only, to die for us. We are not born to die. We are born to be with God forever, as we've just been talking about. But Jesus came solely to die, to save us. He came to do what we see on that big crucifix up there. Jesus does not just tell us about God's love, because he is God's love. He's not just like me talking about the subject. He is the subject. You think about when you take flowers to your wife, husband, boyfriend, mother, father, whoever. You take flowers. Now, why do people do that? Now, for most of the men in here, it's because they're sorry. <laughs> but none of them are denying that. But generally speaking, it's a way of saying, I love you. But nobody thinks that the flowers mean love. The flowers express something unspoken. But that's not true of God. When God speaks, what happens? Whatever he says. What's it say in Genesis? When God spoke, the world came into being. If God says, I want there to be a tree here, there's a tree there. It's not a, it seems like a good idea, I wonder how I'd go and buy that tree and dig up this. God speaks. God's word when he speaks happens. God holds us all in being all the time. If God stops thinking about one of us, we're gone. The word. So Jesus is not just talking about God's love. He is God's love. He is corporeal. He's real, but he's God's love. That's how real God's love is. It's not just a matter of saying, um, oh, let me tell you about God. He's really lovely. When he speaks, he is. He's the love of God that brings the prodigal back from the dead. That love that I read out in the, the parable, the prodigal. That love which is always there to embrace, to celebrate, to hug. The ultimate communication with this love is, of course, communion. In communion, you receive Jesus. You receive God's love. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. That is who 
and what you receive when you go to communion. That is why you should be, as best you can, a worthy receptacle for that. In some ways, the way Our Lady was. Our Lady had to be pure because of who was coming into the world through her. When you go to communion, you should always be endeavouring to receive in as much a state of purity that you can achieve. You shouldn't be in any doubts that you're doing your best. If that is the case, you're in some ways forgetting who you're receiving. Who is coming to you? God is coming to you. One of the most beautiful things I ever read about communion was written by um, a liturgist called Pius Parsh, Father Pius Parsh. And he said, that moment, he's talking about the older form of the Mass, that moment when you go to the rail, you kneel, your eyes closed and your tongue out, and you hope and trust that a priest of God will bring you Jesus, even though you're not worthy. That is the greatest thing that can happen in your life. That's how we should think about communion. That's how communion should touch us. The greatest thing I can do. If we truly understood, I think it was Padre Pio that said this, if we truly understood the way we should, what happens at communion, we would die after one because our hearts would explode because of the wonder and the beauty. There's a real encounter, literally an encounter with God. So fundamentally, it's um, that intimacy which God wants to have with us, which he was able to have when he walked on earth. He was able to take people aside. He was able to cure people by spitting on his fingers and touching their tongue or making paste on their eyes. He was able to hug people. He was able to be touched by the lady who was cured. After his death, he did say he wouldn't leave his orphans. He would never leave us. So, how does he bring us that intimacy now? Who is the body of Christ? That's why he founded a church. He founded a church because that intimacy, which we talked about in regard to Adam, which Jesus was able to have when he walked on this earth, he told us he would never leave us. Where could you find Jesus now? In the tabernacle. That's right. He's never left us. You're all familiar with the analogy that Jesus uses about the vine and the branches from John 15. So, the vine and the branches, are they connected? They are. The church was founded by Christ. The body of Christ is the church because it is intimately connected with him. He founded it. It does the work that he started. He left us, the church. To listen to the church is to listen to Jesus and vice versa. You'll find that in Luke ten sixteen. Jesus wishes all of us to be one. you find that in John 17, 18, 21 to 23. He gives his apostles the ability to forgive sins through the Holy Spirit. I'll be repeating some of these later. That's John 20, 21 to 23. And he'll never abandon us. That's Matthew 28, 20. Now, if you have any doubts about the intimacy between Jesus and the church he founded, that would be 
Acts, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. So here's the story. It's a story you're all very familiar with. There's a young man who trained to be a rabbi called Saul, who hates the way, which is what the early church were called. And he is commissioned by the Sanhedrin to go to Antioch and persecute them out of, in, out of existence. He's on his way, and what happens? He falls off his horse. Chapter 9 in Acts, verse 45. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, sir? The reply came, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into that city, and you will be told what you must do. And if you have any doubts of what that, that St. Paul connected Jesus with his church intimately as the body, you have a look at 1 Corinthians 12.27 or Ephesians 4.12, which in both places, now Paul talks about this quite a lot, but those two places he talks about the church being the body of Christ. You have, you have to build up the body. And he doesn't mean it metaphorically. He's talking about literally because of his experience having been told by Jesus himself that the church is his body. So for this reason, in some ways you can say that the church here on earth, the church founded by Christ, is the sacrament of salvation. Now, it's not one of the seven sacraments, and that can get confusing because sacrament can be used in different ways. But the church has often been described for millennia now as the sacrament of salvation because the church is the body of Christ carrying on the work that Christ started, the Great Commission. Go out and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the sacraments, God takes what seem like very mundane and simple things, and he makes them supernatural. He uses worldly things to achieve otherworldly results. Now, some people, of course, would say that we made all this up, that why does God need physical signs to work within our lives? And the answer to that would be, he doesn't. God doesn't. Who does? We do. Flowers. Most of you would know your, your, your spouses love you. You don't necessarily need to give them flowers. Spontaneous gifts. You don't need to give a spontaneous gift. But isn't it a wonderful thing when it happens? Isn't it a wonderful thing when someone says to you, thank you for everything you do? I had somebody two days ago come up to me I didn't recognize. He squeezed my hand and he said, thank you for being a priest, Father. I nearly burst into tears. Nearly. I have cried about that before. That man didn't need to say that to me. But what a beautiful gift he gave me. What a beautiful thing to, to say. So God's not curtailed by... One of the things that you, you will sometimes hear if you um, get involved with um, more evangelicals, they will say that what we acclaim that sacraments do is that... We say um, special words, hocus pocus. You know that's a, that's a derogatory term against Catholics. Did you know that? It came after the Reformation when they said that 
um, priests think that they do magic. So you know the hokey, the hokey cokey. You know that song? Do the hokey cokey. Well, it's, it's actually hokey cokey, but because it comes because it comes from England, and the whole thing is a mockery of the mass. And children were taught it as an anti-Catholic strategy. You think about this. Any of you have been to the extraordinary form of the mass? How does the song go? You put your right leg in, your right leg out. That's genuflecting. You do the hokey pokey, which is supposed to be. Dominus Obiscum as well. You turn around, which is what priests did. It's all a mockery of the Mass. Children were taught it as a mockery of the Mass. No, and I had to pull up some nuns that were teaching it to children once, about four years ago here. That I, was, I was sitting, working in my office, and I heard people singing it, and I thought, what? And I went out, and I said to the sister, sister, what are you doing? And she said, I'm teaching these children this rhyme, and I said, this is an anti-Catholic rhyme that was created on Elizabethan England to make fun of the Mass. And she said, I don't think so. <laughs> so I went properly in, I printed it off for her, I handed it to her, and she went, oh, why have I never been told that before? And I said, I have no idea, I don't know where you went to school. And the reason why you've not heard that in the States is because it was written in England during Elizabethan times to mock the church. But you think about it, anybody who's been to extraordinary form of the Mass, like Don, you can see the spinning round because the priest turns with his hands out like this. He genuflects, leg in, out, in, out, shake it all about. You do the hokey-pokey and you turn around. That's what it's all about. Mockery. Anyway, so... Um, to go back to what I was saying, that some, some people would say that we do special things and we force God into, we think we force God into, into performing. We don't. Of course we don't. That's totally ridiculous. The corporeal things that God gave us, and we'll go through them in a, in a little while, water, host, bread, oil, God gave us them because we are corporeal beings. Sight, touch, and taste. Who gave us our senses? God. So when God became man, do you not think God realized how wonderful it is to see? In fact, there's a great... Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle um, was a fallen away Catholic. But in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, Dr. Watson walks in and Holmes is holding a rose. And he says to Watson, here truly is proof that God exists. Look at the beauty of this rose. There's no other reason than it is beautiful. Do you not think God experienced that when he was a man? God saw beautiful people. God heard beautiful singing. God smelled beautiful things. I, I'm, I would imagine since St. Anne is the patron of, cook, of, of chefs and cooks, that Our Lady was probably pretty good at what she made. I don't think she'd have been overspicing. But all these things, God lived a real life. All the things that bring us joy, the smiles, laughter. Why would we laugh? What separates us from the other high primates? A sense of humor, amongst many other things. Because although chimpanzees laugh, it's not because it's a, it's, it's a noise they make. They don't have what's called a risable attitude. They can't laugh at jokes. They don't get jokes. 
You saw chimpanzees going about to fall on the ice. They're not all going to go, ha, 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 not. It's just a noise they make that to us sounds like laughter. God gave us laughter. So why would God not have us use all of our senses in worshipping him? Of course we would. That's why we've got them. Think of all the different ways as well now that God used material things to manifest himself in the Old Testament. You probably think of a few. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, burning bush, a dove, tongues of fire, storm winds, uh, loud noises, and flashing. They're all ways that God used things to make himself known to us using our different senses. He didn't just speak. He, did, he used other things as well that we could use our eyes. So Jesus is the presence of God. And the church, as the body of Christ, must in some way make present God to the world. That divine intimacy that I talked about at the start. Because God wishes to be with us always. And the Eucharist, which of course is Jesus, is truly, really present. What more is there? There's the sacraments. So sacramental means oath. It's a Latin word, it means oath. Soldiers in the, the Roman army used to take an oath. They actually used to take a couple of oaths that bound them intimately to the emperor. In fact, they got branded. They had an indel- a mark that could not be removed. What happens in baptism? You get a mark that cannot be removed. What happens in confirmation? You get a mark that can't be removed. What happens when you get ordained? You have a mark that cannot be removed. In ordination, it's slightly more profound, but still, these are marks that cannot be moved. You can never not, you can't unbecome a Catholic. You're baptized into the church, you can't unbecome it. You can turn your back on God, you can walk away from God, but you can't unbecome it because it's got nothing to do with you. <laughs> the sacraments belong to God, as we'll get to in a, in a, a second. Whoever receives the sacraments in faith is being offered life in the Trinity. That is salvation. And it's an anticipation of the fullness which we will receive after death. So if you look up on the board here, life in the Trinity. Right, that's heaven. You know, we will be, hopefully, we'll all get to heaven and we will be enjoying the beatific vision, which is seeing God as he truly is. That's total happiness, that's when we will be in heaven. God wants to become intimately accessible to us, that divine intimacy. So what did he do? Tried so many other things, eventually he became one of us. Jesus became corporeal so that man could speak to man, so that God and man could be even more intimately linked. Jesus died because the sin against God had to be unmade by God. That's why Jesus died. So he knew that he was believing us in, in his bodily way. So what did he do? He founded a church in order to carry on his work. The church needed to be able to bring about this intimacy. What did Jesus do? He gave the church a means and method to apply that work that would bring about this intimacy this access to the life of salvation, and it's the seven sacraments. And receiving the sacraments 
binds us to the church, which is Christ visible at work among us, who in turn brings us to life in the Trinity. The sacraments are given to us so that we can access grace, which will bring us intimately to a connection with, with God. Does that make sense? In the Catechism, 1075, yeah, 1076 rather, the, the title of that is Sacramental Economy. Section 1, that's of the celebration of the Christian mystery. The church has made manifest to the world, or rather, the church was made manifest to the world on the day of Pentecost by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Spirit ushers in a new era in the dispensation of the mystery, the age of the church, during which Christ manifests, makes present, and communicates his work of salvation through the liturgy of his church until he comes again. In this age of the church, Christ now lives and acts in and with his church in a new way appropriate to this new age. He acts through the sacraments in what the common tradition of the East and West calls the sacramental economy. This is the communication or dispensation of the fruits of Christ's Paschal mystery and the celebration of the church's sacramental liturgy. Liturgy is tied up with um, the sacraments. Obviously, you know that, that... Um, the sacraments all take place within a liturgical setting, apart from if there's an emergency, and even if there's an emergency and someone's being baptized, it's still a liturgical act, sacramental, but it's, it's done with words and actions. The sacraments don't just remember what Christ did. A sacrament makes the whole person of Christ truly present. They're not just symbolic things. The sacraments unite us with the person of Christ, and in so doing, we share in his triumph. The sacraments are not just pointing to something. The sacraments are signs which signify the things that they actually do, which I'll explain as we go along. In Article 1104 in the Catechism, Christian liturgy not only recalls the events that saved us, but actualizes them, makes them present. The Paschal mystery of Christ is celebrated, not repeated. It is the, celebration that are, the celebrations that are repeated. And in each celebration, there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that makes a unique mystery present. So the Eucharist is a representation, not a representation, a representation of the sacrifice of Christ. It's a true sacrifice, it makes it present to us again. It's not that we don't think it happened the first time. It gives us accesses to the graces which we need of the ongoing battle that we have against sin towards our salvation. The sacraments are all established by, established by Jesus. They are divine actions. God is the one who gives the sacraments their power to transform and glorify us. God, who is always faithful, guarantees the validity of all the sacraments, not the priest, not the building. Christ offers us anew the grace won for us by his mercy and suffering and death. And this would be a good time to read out 1125, which I've mentioned before in passing. 1125 in the, in the, in the Catechism, which in my Catechism, as I hold this up, you'll see is highlighted because it's very important. 
I mean, my cat's because we've got a lot of highlighted things, as you can see, but for this reason, no sacramental rite may be modified or manipulated at the will of the minister or the community. Even the supreme authority in the church, who is the Pope, may not change the liturgy arbitrarily, but only in obedience of faith and with religious respect for the mystery of the liturgy. It is not allowed for priests to do their own thing. In fact, it is a heinous thing for a priest to do his own thing because the sacraments belong to who? That's right, they're God's work. And for a priest to come along and say, well, I don't like this, or this makes me uncomfortable, or I think it'd be much nicer if we did this. We won't have unleavened bread and wine. We'll have other weird things. Well, no, Father, that's actually, and may God have mercy on their souls. There's an old saying which applies to liturgy. Do the red and say the black. So in liturgical books, what's called rubrics, rubrics comes from the Latin word rubris, which means red. Rubrics are written in red. So do the red, say the black. Wherever you go in the world, mass should look the same because there isn't different rules for the guy down the street than there is for the guy up the street. There isn't. Some countries, Austria, in some parts of Austria, they never kneel now because people don't like kneeling. So the cardinals there said they didn't, people didn't need to kneel. They don't have the authority to do that. During the Eucharistic prayer, there are two positions that the church says it's legitimate to adopt. Do you know what they are? Standing and kneeling. You should only be sitting if you can't do one of the other two. Now, that should have been taught to people. It wasn't taught to people. But it should have been taught to people. There are many things that should have been taught to people that priests didn't do. But the important thing to always bear in mind is the sacraments don't belong to priests. They can't just pick and choose what books. There's a group of priests in Australia who don't like the proper translation we have now. So they actually asked, could they get a dispensation to celebrate Mass in what they said was the more traditional way from 1970, which is not an accurate translation. And they were told no. But I wonder, in 1970, were those very same men standing up and saying, why are you changing this from Latin? I doubt it. Which would have been a legitimate argument to say, since that did have well over a thousand years of patrimony. Okay, we can be certain... Um, that God keeps his, for, his, um, his promises, not because the sacraments have some power to force God, as I was saying, but because we are God's children. He made us, he loves us, and he wants us to be with him forever. So, what makes a sacrament? This is straight from the Catechism, 1131. The sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. So sacraments are signs, both visible and audible and tactile. Signs are fundamental to human communication. We all know that. Efficacious means has the power to achieve the desired result. Effectiveness. But they're effective as well. So let me just split that up a bit. Okay. The sacraments are signs. They're human means of communication and no human being communicates without some kind of sign. Telepathy may exist, but it's 
if it is the case, it's rare and it's not very well planned and things like that. Because even somebody like that wonderful woman, Helen Keller, who was deaf, deaf, well, was blind and deaf, wasn't she? And, but she learned to communicate by signs and sounds. It's fundamental to us. It's fundamental to the way that we, that we operate. That's why God would use it for us as well. The difference with sacraments being signs is that they don't just, as I talked about, they don't just represent things. They actually convey it. They work and carry out the very thing they represent. Example would be the host. The host doesn't just symbolize Christ at Mass. Now it does. That's why it's called a host. But it doesn't just do that. It is Christ. Not just symbolic. It is Him. Whereas our signs, and I talked about the one about uh, uh, flowers. Flowers can represent love, but they aren't the love. The love is a more ten, uh, tenuous thing. The signs of grace, this is what actually is given to us. Grace is not a thing or an object. You can't kind of put it in a bucket. Any more than you can measure a friendship. You, know, you can't say, this person's number seven on the friendship scale, and this guy over here is a number two. Um, the sacraments, by the, the grace that they give us, they give us access and a share into the divine life. As I said, they're a foreshadow of what we are called eventually to experience, that loving life of the Trinity. It's the divine life is what grace is. Grace, grace is a freely given gift by God that helps us experience the divine life. God gives us himself whole and entire each time we receive the sacraments in faith. If we don't receive them in faith, we're not going to grow in faith. We're not going to grow in the divine life. Not because God's not offering it, but because we're blocking it. The graces are always there. Uh, it was St. Alphonsus Liguri, I think, who said that if you could access the graces of one communion, you would in instantly be a saint. But we have a lot of difficulty doing that because we're all broken. And that's why we have the sacraments, to help us overcome our brokenness. And they're instituted by Christ. So the sacraments all have matter, form, intention, and mind. The two most important things that are, are usually talked about in regard to the sacraments is form and matter. And they're on the handout that I just gave. Um, intention in mind is not. So just to go through one and then we'll look at the, the handout. The matter for ordination to the priesthood is a man, baptized Catholic man who's confirmed. Okay? The form is the bishop prays the appropriate kind of words over the man. The intention is that there will be an ontological change and he will then become a worthy follower of the Lord in order to offer the holy sacrifice and guide the faithful in other ministerial, priestly ministerial duties. The mind of the church is for this to happen. Okay? So, we pick a more, something that does not fit this. A woman baptized 
confirmed is the wrong matter. Doesn't matter what the bishop says, doesn't matter what his intentions are, doesn't matter what his mind is. Okay? It doesn't fit this because there has to be baptism. What is the matter of bapt- the, the matter of bat- baptism? Matter being material. It's water. The matter is water in baptism. Has to be water, can't be Diet Coke, for example, can't be bourbon, can't be whiskey, has to be water. Okay, there's also anointings that go on, but it's water. The form is, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The intention, that the person becomes a member of the, of the church. The mind is, that this person will go on to live a faithful life. And this baptism can be done by anyone in emergencies. They don't need to be a Catholic. They don't even need to be a Christian. I met a priest once whose parents died. His mother died giving birth to him. His father had already died. And the, the mother's next-door neighbors were the ones who brought him up, who were Muslims, and they brought him up into the church because that's what she asked. And he became a priest. God works in mysterious ways. Okay, so Article 11.14 in the Catechism. Adhering to the teachings of the Holy, Spirit, Holy Scriptures, to the apostolic traditions, and the consensus of the Fathers, we profess that the sacraments of the new law were all instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is quoting the Council of Trent. And then 11.17 as she has done for the canon of sacred scripture and for the doctrine of faith, the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit who guides her into all truth, has gradually recognized this treasure received from Christ and, as faithful stewards of God's mysteries, has determined its dispensation. Thus, the church has discerned over the centuries that among liturgical celebrations there are seven that are, in the strict sense of the term, sacraments instituted by the Lord. That's why we have seven. That's why sometimes you might look at things in the past and think, not so sure that they thought that was a sacrament, but now we do. Just like say, it took a long time for the canon of Scripture to be discerned properly by the church um, because God lets us work things out. He doesn't force things on us. Sometimes he has. But Okay, so if you look at this handout, you can see that if you go across, you've got the sacrament, then the minister, then the Scriptures, then the required state, the frequency, the effect, the form, and the, the matter. Now, I'm going to read out the, the first ones of each list of, uh, of the different sacraments. So, um, baptism. You look at it's Matthew 28, 19, 20. Um, that's known to all of us. Um, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that seems very clear there. Um, confirmation is Acts eight fourteen to 17. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for it had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
they had yet the, then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Should sound familiar to us all. Then the the Eucharist. Well, obviously there are many that you can look to for the Last Supper, but um, so here's. Uh, it's actually the second one, Matthew 26 to 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. And confession, which is John. 2023. Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Now, just as an aside, how would I know what your sins were? The only way that can pan out is that it must be auricular confession. Because otherwise, how could I know what your sins were in order to, to forgive them unless you actually told me? Which is why the church has always had what's called auricular confession. Um, so where was I? Uh, marriage. Okay, so the one that I chose for marriage is Matthew 19, 3 to 12. Some Pharisees approached him and tested him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, whatever? He said in reply, Have you not read... From the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. Okay, there's a little bit more of that you can read at your leisure. Holy orders. I've chosen Acts chapter 6, 5, five and 6. This is, this is about... Um, St. Stephen, but the proposal was, was accepted to the whole community. So they chose Stephen, a man filled with faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorius, Nicanor, Timon, Parnas, and Nicholas of Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. Okay, and then anointing of the sick. The one that you usually, when, if you've ever been anointed or been present, you'll have heard read out is uh, from the letter of James because it's the one that's part, actually part of the, of the liturgical rite of anointing. So I've chosen another one. Um, so Mark chapter 6 verse 13. They drove out many demons and they anointed, they anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. So that's, the, that's just some of them. You've got it on the handout, all the other ones as well. Did it make sense? All right. In that case, Dawn's already moved her way over to the lights. Thanks for joining us today. You can listen again to this or any other episode of Let's Talk Catholic at our blog, letstalkcatholicpodcast.blogspot.com, or you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or almost any other podcast provider. You can also like us on Facebook. Let's Talk Catholic is produced by Nick Medelsky and can be heard right here on Relevant Radio in Northern Michigan, Saturdays at noon. Excellent.